In 2011, I climbed into a U-Haul truck after putting my kids on an airplane with their aunt and uncle for them to head back to Bowling Green. Um, excuse me, this is now 2012. And I climbed into a U-Haul with my wife uh, where a year before then, I'd climbed into a, year, a U-Haul with, with Pastor Justin and my dad and um, Todd Hazel where we had taken everything that we owned and condensed it down to two U-Hauls and moved to the valley, the Phoenix Valley area, to a city called Surprise, where I was doing church revitalization of a 10-year-old church plant there. And, uh, but almost to the day, climbed back into the U-Haul, resold a bunch of stuff again with my wife, and in many ways, uh, distraught, uh, broken, um, desperate, and, and simply not knowing what to do because we were caught in a situation as a pastor where things were going really well at our church. We loved our people. We love Phoenix. I'm not looking for a stepping stone position in a church to where I'm just looking for the next bigger and greater thing or a bigger paycheck from a church. But I really want to go someplace. I want to put down roots, and I want to stay in, in my legacy of a pastor, be there for the majority of my life. And we really thought when moving to Arizona that that was exactly what was going to happen, that we had left the bluegrass and traded it for a lot of desert. But we loved it. We missed home. We did not realize how southern we were until we were in Arizona. Um, but we knew that God had called us there and had placed us there. And yet now, in tears, uh, we are driving I-40 from Phoenix all the way back to Nashville to hop on 65. And it didn't take very long for my wife to look over at me um, because she knew how difficult this was for me, uh, that I was choosing ultimately, which was the better choice, to be a parent over being a pastor, and that we had to make some decisions in regarding our son Cash, who has severe special needs, um, that this was a better place to raise him. And so I stopped or relinquished my responsibilities with people whom I loved, a flock whom I deeply loved in order uh, to come back here to Bowling Green. And uh, Laura looks over me with those beautiful glassy blue eyes and says, so what are you going to do? And I'm thinking, well, that didn't take long. And I uh, looked out. We were almost to Flagstaff, Arizona. And I looked out this side. She was sitting right here. And I looked out the window, and I was like, I'm going to shoot. And she was like, what? And I said, I'm going to she said, what? I said, um, I'm, I'm going I'm to plant a church. <laughs> and my wife looked at me and she said, uh, that's exactly what I think you should do. Okay. So no joke, in a U-Haul 14-footer, pulling a Ford Exploder. If you know what a Ford Exploder is, I'm sorry for you too. What a piece of junk. Going 90 to 95 miles per hour, 
across the plains of Oklahoma, I drove, as my wife so beautifully slept for 20 hours, like this. But we had a plan, an agreement in our home that that's what we were going to do. So we landed. Uh, we had broke ourselves financially, just being really confessionally, moving across the country and moving back just broke us. Uh, took out all my retirement, nothing. Came back, had to move with my in-laws. They were gracious to allow us to move in. And so I started looking for a job. Laura got a job at the Rockfield Elementary here in Bowling Green. I'm trying to find a job that would allow me to both um, plant mission, um, but also uh, work some. And so I became the lunch lady man at Rockfield Elementary and um, convinced Pastor Justin, uh, then just Justin, um, hey man, let's do this thing. Convinced, or I didn't convince, I told my sister and brother-in-law, um, here's the deal. You don't have a choice where you go to church anymore. We're now up to six members. I'm relinquishing your membership from any other church that you belong to. It's now at Mission Church. We've got six and a bunch of little babies running around. And so in that August of 2012, uh, we started by gathering a small group of people and uh, in their living room of the Hazel's house. And uh, by the grace of God, I think 10 or 12 of you um, were with us from that day one, and uh, you are still with us here today. And so, though I thank every one of you for being here this morning, I want to specifically honor and thank the Lord for those 10 to 12 folks who are still with us here today. Um, because you have uh, stood the test. You took your covenant seriously. Um, you have shown us, your elders, lots of grace and a lot of uh, just patience as we've tried to figure out this whole church planting thing. I honestly cannot um, believe that seven years have passed. In seven years, uh, we have seen many come, and we have seen many go. In seven years, we have become uh, all-stars at uh, being fruitful and multiplying. Thank you for growing our church. We're yet to do a funeral in the life of our church. And all of these things culminate on what is today, January the 6th of 2013, 2012, 2013. Get all my dates messed up. Uh, we publicly launched what is now known as, as Mission Church. And again, God has been very gracious to us. He's been very, very patient with us. Because if you haven't figured this out, y'all get on my nerves. And here's what I already know. I get on yours. Because I get on my own. 
but God has been gracious. And so we're going to talk about this gracious, gracious God on this, our seventh, the beginning of our seventh year of, of celebrating that we are still here, that God is with us, and that God has done much. This should not be taken lightly, but in the, the very corridors and depths of our hearts, we should be celebrating that you and I are still in these seats, and we are still more than ever dedicated to the worshiping of Jesus, to the making of disciples, and to multiplying. In the book of Samuel, um, there is this word called the Philistines. And typically when we think about this word, we think of one story. David and Goliath, the famous Philistine. And we think of that one battle that is found in the book of Samuel. Uh, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel were not originally split. They were originally put as one single story inside of the Old Testament. But in order to make it easier for us to read and understand, the commentators or the, the, those who canonized the Scripture split it into two books, much like Luke and Acts, if you didn't know that, in the New Testament. It's one book. But when we think about the word Philistine, we think of one story. David, this runt of a fella, this red-headed runt-y fella, beating the giant, the Philistine giant with a stone and a slingshot. However, we need to understand, in regards to understanding the book of the, the first Samuel, we need to understand that the, the Jews themselves have been at war and opposition against the Philistines for years leading up to that one epic battle where we see that scene. The Philistines and the Israelites are enemies. By the time we get to 1 Samuel chapter 4, the Philistines are methodically closing in on the Israelites. Battle after battle, and the Philistines are, are gaining footholds every time. Desperate for a win, the Israelites borrow a concept from their pagan enemies. It was common pagan practice that when you were going to war, that you would take the statue, the flag, a representation of your nation into battle. They would carry it believing that that specific God would give them, give them blessing. It would give them safety. It would help them to win the battle. And desperate for a win, the Israelites decide that they are going to take the very symbol of the nation of Israel, the very symbol of the presence of God on the planet, which is known as the Ark of the Covenant. In this box rests the Ten Commandments, the, I think the rod of Aaron and some, some other things. But it represented that these were God's people, and the presence of God, that God was holy, that he was set apart. And so by the time you get to 1 Samuel chapter 4, the Israelites are saying, man, we're taking the Ark of the Covenant into this battle. And if we do so, we will surely win. God is with us. This will scare them. So in chapter 4, in a city called Ebenezer, they go into a fight. They go into a war. And much to the Israelites' surprise... And also to the Philistines, the Israelites, the nation of Israel, loses the battle. 
But not only did they lose the battle, the Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant. I was trying to think of what that would equate to us as Americans. Imagine just for a moment that there was a Nazi flag flying in front of the White House. That'd be a pretty big shocker, right? Or that the Statue of Liberty was painted like a Japanese flag. That'd be a pretty big shocker to our nationalistic system. And yet even more so, this was a gift to them from God. It was important to them. It was the most important symbol of this nation that we are God's chosen people. He is our God. And we are his people. And now it's in the hands of these pagan worshipers who worship a plethora of of many other gods, of false idols and false gods. So the Philistines now, they're in control of this. And they they take it back um, to one of their cities. And in taking it back to one of their cities, they take it into the temple of one of their false gods, a god named Dagon. And Dagon, there, he was uh, known as uh, the god of grain or the god of fish. And of course, like many pagan gods and like many of our gods, there's all sorts of sexual things that take place in immorality around these gods. And as a showing of humiliation toward the Israelites, they take the Ark of the Covenant and they set it at the feet of this statue named Dagon. They go about their business and then they come to worship Dagon the next morning, the Philistines do, and when they get there, lo and behold, to all of their amazement, the statue of Dagon is now laying face first, prostrate on the ground with his head toward the Ark of the Covenant. In bewilderment, they're wondering, man, what is, how did this happen? So they set the statue of Dagon back up in front of the ark. They go about their business, and the next morning they come in to worship Dagon, and lo and behold, what is found again? The statue of Dagon is laying with his face against the ground at the foot of the ark of the covenant, but this time its arms and its head are ripped off. It's said that nothing is left of this statue but a stump of it. They begin to wonder what's taking place here. How is this happening? The Philistines begin to wonder in their, mis- their amusement or just wondering how in the world is this play- taking place when all of a sudden, throughout that city, they begin to be overrun with mice or rats. The, the scripture kind of alludes to this. But even more so, imagine full cities being covered with people who are covered in tumors. So these boils and tumors begin to swell all over the Philistines living in this city. So they get really smart. They're like, hey, something is up with this Israelite God. And something is up with this Ark of the Covenant. This obviously does not belong to us. So what should we do with it? Let's take it to another Philistine city. Because they would love to have this in their city. 
It's the Ark of the Covenant from the Israelites. So they go and they offer it to this other city. Hey, Philistines, you guys get the trophy today. You get to take this today. Here you go. This is for you. And so inside of that city, lo and behold, it becomes overrun with rats and mice. I can handle snakes and spiders, but I don't like rats. It's overran. Tumors swell up on all of those Philistines. So they're really smart people, so what do they do? Oh, let's take it to another city. Let's take it to another Philistine city. So they take it to another Philistine city, and again, the same thing happens. Rats, tumors. So the Philistines finally, a little slow, like we are, they determine, hey, we got to give this back to the Israelites. Okay? We don't like them. They're still our enemies. We want their land but they can have their box back. They can have their box back. And so there's this great epic story I wish I had time to go into about these calves and what happens with them and that they, they decorate and they offer all of this stuff. They're like, hey, we got we to gotta get, get rid of this. Like we're tired of having the tumors. Israelites, you can have your box back. And so they go and they make a peace offering in regards to the box to the Israelites. And so the Israelites are given this. It says for over seven months or so, I mean, just tons of people are covered in tumors until they get rid of the box, the Ark of the Covenant. And as soon as they give it back to the Israelites, the tumors are gone. And that leads us up to this part in chapter 7. And there's this passage here. Look at it. Chapter 7. They've been given back the ark. And in verse 2, it says, For the day of the ark was lodged in some really random, hard-pronounced place. A long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So it's in their possession for 20 years. They get it back for 20 years. And yet something really interesting happens here. So because they, they have possession of the ark. But they have not completely put their faith and trust in God again. They have the box back. They have the Ark of the Covenant. They have the presence of God back in their midst. And yet they are sorrowful for the things that they have done. Yet they are not repentant of those things. And it is often said that the Israelites had a profession of faith, but they didn't have a possession of faith. You ever been caught? Like doing something you would really enjoy doing? Anybody? You feel sorry for what you've done. But even more so, you feel sorry that you got caught. You're not repentant. You're not uh, re running from this. You're, you're embarrassed. You're, you're thinking, man, this, look at how bad my life has gotten. Look how bad my family's gotten. Look how bad my marriage has gotten. Your, 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 your relationships, your job situation, whatever it is. And you're thinking, man, I'm, I am sorrowful for this. I am embarrassed by this. But the New Testament is going to tell us that there are two different types of sorrow. There's a worldly sorrow. 
Then there's a spiritual sorrow. The Israelites had a worldly sense of sorrow. As one of the commentators put it, they had put their faith in the ark of God, not the God of the ark. See, God is not after theirs nor our religious practices. See, God is after your affections. The chief end of man is what, as the catechisms tell us, is to know God and to enjoy Him forever. To know God and to enjoy Him forever. Not to know about God, not to have a bunch of Christian books and CDs and movies in which all of those things can be, I don't know about the movies part, all, many of those things can be beneficial. But the idea is to know God. See, the ark was not God. It was pointing toward God. And yet they had treated it like God. They had a profession of faith, but they didn't have a possession of faith. And so we get to chapter 7 here in verse 3, and it says, And Samuel, and Samuel's a prophet. We've got a great story of him at the very beginning of this letter, this book. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods of the Asheroth and among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the, the balls and the Asheroth, and they served the Lord only. And they served the Lord only. And so this is what we see here. They had been given the ark. They knew who Yahweh was. And yet when, when Samuel shows up on the scene to prophesy to them, to judge them, to rule over them, to lead them, he's reminding them that though they had this idea, yes, we believe in Yahweh. The Lord God is one. Though we believe in him, there is also this, this, this simultaneously, this worship of these other gods that is taking place inside of Israel. See, they wanted God, but they wanted these gods as well. Specifically, the gods that are mentioned here is the, the, the god of, of Baal and the Asheroth. And so we see that that Samuel steps into the scene and he's, and he's thinking, man, this is great that you've gotten this, the Ark of the Covenant back. But what about these other gods? And so what does the prophet Samuel do? He calls them to repentance. He calls them to a spiritual sense of sorrowfulness. Not a worldly sense of justifying that we're going to both, yes, worship God, or in our case, worship Jesus, but simultaneously we're going to worship these much smaller, insignificant gods as well because we don't necessarily trust everything that Jesus is going to do for us and his promise to us. So we also need these things. So what does Samuel do here? The first thing he does is he calls them to repent. Not just sorry for you being caught. Not just a confession of sin and wrong. But he calls them to flee from their sin and return where, church? To the Lord. 
That's repentance. It's not just the, the moving away from sin, but it's the moving away from sin towards something truer and better. And his name is Jesus. And Samuel calls the people, hey, if you truly want to be repentant, you've got to be repentant. And in doing so, you've got to put away these false gods. See, the, the god Baal was the, the storm god. He was a, a fertility god. Asheroth was the goddess of war and of love and of fertility. And so, yes, we want the God of Abraham, but we also, if there's a drought in the land, we're going to sacrifice possibly even our firstborn sons to the, prophet, or to, the, to the God of Baal or to Asheroth so that we can have blessing and have rain to come down on our grain. See what they were doing? We want our God, but we also want all of these gods. We're at war with the Philistines, so we're going to worship the goddess of Asheroth, who is the goddess of war. And yet Samuel reminds them to put away these false gods and to serve God only. And we see in verse 4, what? So the people of Israel put away the, 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 the balls or the bell and, and, and the Asheroth, and they served the Lord only. And then notice what happens in verse 5. Then Samuel said, Gather all of Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fastened on that day. And he said, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel, and when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord on our behalf, or our God, for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord in the, uh, for Israel, and the Lord answered him, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering to the Philistines, or to burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. They were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mitzpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as Beshkar. So what does Samuel do? All right, you've repented. You're putting away false gods. You are serving me. You're serving God. Serve God with all of your heart. And immediately, we see a response to those truths. They weren't just merely taking in the information, but they were living out this information. And so Samuel says, I want you to call every person in the nation of, of Israel to Mitzpah. So we're talking about thousands, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. Now gather for a worship gathering on Mitzpah or at Mitzpah. And look what happens. They're worshiping God. They're fasting. They're praying. And they're sacrificing. You get that? They're, they're fasting, they're praying, and they're sacrificing. 
And the Philistines, they get really smart. They're thinking, man, look at all of the nations of Israel. They've got spies. They're sending out people. They're, they're watching their enemy. And they're seeing all this enemy, and they're, they're seeing them worship. They are not prepared for battle, but they are prepared to worship God. And looking at this, the Philistines say, now we've got the upper hand. So let's go and attack them while they worship. Let us declare war. This is the pristine time to do this. And yet, what does the Bible tell us that God does? In verse 10, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound and caused confusion. And the Israelites were able to then press into and to ultimately defeat the Philistines. They had gathered for worship. The Philistines had gathered for war. And yet, who had sword in hands? The Philistine. Who had worshipful hands? The Israelites. And yet in that midst, and, and surely their greatest demise that this should be over, God shows up on the scene in faithfulness and is the ultimate God of gods. He is the King of kings. He is the creator of all things. All false gods bow down at the feet of our God because there is only one. Isn't it interesting that the culture around them worshiped the storm god and the war god? And how does God show up in thunder and war? To once again, as he did through the plagues in Egypt, to show that all those Egyptian plagues that happened were all and ideas or reflections of the worshiping Egyptians toward all of these false gods. And what does God do to the Egyptians? I mean, he destroys them all by, by creating and using his, the creative order to destroy those gods. He, he did it as the Ark of the Covenant was laid at the feet of Dagon. And what's happening? The statue of Dagon is at the mercy and at, at the, the feet of the presence of God. And in the heat of battle, God destroys the gods. God of the storm and the God of war because there is only one God. How does an army win? When you are not prepared for battle. God. God. See, God was faithful. If you have your Bibles, turn back with me to the, the very second chapter in the book of Samuel. In the book of Samuel, a praying mama, a godly mama, is praying for her boy. And in doing so, listen to what Hannah prays in chapter 2. Speaking of God, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them. He will thunder in heaven. See, brothers and sisters, once again, we get this beautiful picture that it is not about us. 
but that it is about God. It is about him. Once again, God shows us his superiority over other gods, the gods of man. What the, the God of Baal could not do, God does. What the God of Asheroth could not do, God does. Not while the Israelites held their swords in the air, but, but rather when they were unarmed, only praying, fasting, and sacrificing with their hands. And we see this mighty move of God. See, brothers and sisters, God will not be in an open marriage. God will not be in an open marriage. You cannot serve God and man. You cannot serve God, the God of the Scripture. You cannot serve Jesus and serve the idols in our hearts and in our homes. We see in Psalm chapter 20, verses 6 throughout, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots, some in horses. But what church? But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and they fall. But we rise and stand upright. What a picture of God's faithfulness to an unfaithful people. A picture of God's faithfulness to an unfaithful people. We see here in the passage that I read at the very beginning of the sermon... Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mitzvah and Shin and called the name Ebenezer. If you remember earlier in the sermon, I told you where they lost the ark, what was the name of the place? Ebenezer. But now, there's a second Ebenezer. The first Ebenezer was the place in which they lost the presence of God, where they sinned against God and His desire. But now this new, this new redeemed Ebenezer will place, was a place to remember. Ebenezer means the stone of help. I don't know Hebrew, but I know how to read a little. And the Hebrew translators tell me that not only does it mean the stone of help, but there is this, this potential connotation here that the word Ebenezer actually means the stone of thee help. And that thee is very significant. The stone of the help. See, brothers and sisters, in our culture, when someone dies, what do we do? We erect a stone where we lay them to rest. And we go visit them to remember them. But brothers and sisters, this monument that, that, that Samuel erects in the middle of these two cities that he names Ebenezer was, was not a, a monument to the dead and to those who may, had lost in battle, but it was a reminder to show them of the living God who was among them. It was a reminder that God is God and that God is faithful and that God is with us, and that God is with you. 
Man, am I the only one in this room today who can honestly confess that there have been moments, probably even in this last year, when I have been in the shower because that's the only place in our home, and I've propped my head against that fiberglass, shaking my head with tears running down my face as hot water is hitting my body, and I'm simply going, God, I do not know what to do. I do not know what to do. And it takes place in the shower because if I look wet, then it doesn't look like I'm crying to the rest of my family. I do not know what to do. I do not have the strength to make it another day in myself. I do not know what to do in this situation. Lord, I don't know how to help my own family. I don't know how to help these people. Look at what's going on in their lives. Look at what sin, Satan, and death has caused in these people's lives. And I simply do not know what to do. Look at what it's causing in my own life. And yet God is reminding me in those moments by myself as he is reminding the Israelites and as he is reminding us as Mission Church this morning that he is faithful. That he is faithful, brothers and sisters. He is God. He is with us. When he seems distant, when he seems silent, when we simply cry out, I do not know what to do, when it seems as though the voice of God cannot scream loud enough for us to hear, where it seems as though he is absent from us, God is reminding us through this scripture and through his word that he is with us, that he is the stone of help. He's with us. He's with us. See, brothers and sisters, we have a tendency to forget, do we not? We have a tendency to forget. We have a tendency to forget all that God has done. We were reminded by Ebenezer the city, that is where we have lost the ark. But we are reminded by Ebenezer the stone monument to our God where we gain the victory. See, brothers and sisters, we, we need to be reminded in a healthy way of our sin. We often forget where you and I came from. I love that passage in the New Testament where it lists out all these like rotten sins that we would call them. And it says, so were some of you. See, because brothers and sisters, when you and I forget where we've come from, we will not be as compassionate toward those who are still there. Even if their sin is different than you and I's. But when we remember, we're reminded of our sin, and yet we're reminded of our Savior. Is this not the picture of the cross? The, the cross is this paradoxical event, is it not? It's the most excruciating, the most wretched, the most despicable death in all of humanity as Jesus lay bare naked upon the cross, absorbing the full brunt of divine wrath for the sin. Not that he, uh, uh, not that he did, but the sins of you and I. It is one of those things that we would turn our eyes in disgust at. in one sense. And yet, in the exact opposite sense, it should be something that we should never take our eyes from. 
We were reminded of our sin, yet we were reminded of our Savior. As one pastor I heard once say, he said this, that forgetfulness may be the single greatest weapon against our faith. I am prone to wonder. I am prone to forget. I am prone to easily be discouraged. And all of that is a reflection of my forgetfulness of a faithful, faithful God. I'm going to talk more about this at our covenant membership meeting on Wednesday night. But I, I just have the utmost respect and appreciation for this godly woman. And I love this quote from Jen Wilkin who says this. The Bible is our great Ebenezer. A memorial stone to the faithfulness of God carefully recorded and preserved for his children. And every copy, from the dog-eared to the disregarded, is whispering, remember. Remember the God who remembers you. Every page, every page, said, don't forget, don't forget, remember every page, God, every dot and tittle, the Bible says, is perfectly placed there by the sovereign hand of God. Every page, brothers and sisters, as we are prone to wonder, as we are prone to forgetfulness, God is reminding us through the, the ultimate Ebenezer. That's why we don't need to erect these sorts of things. That's why we don't need huge steeples. That's why we don't need these huge monuments or touch down Jesuses out in front of our churches. What we need is to get back to the Bible because we are prone to wonder in our forgetfulness, and yet the Bible is a daily reminder that God is faithful in the midst of all of our unfaithfulness. He has never left us. He has never forsaken you, brother. He has never forsaken you, sister. God has been gracious to us here at Mission you know anything about church planting, we should have never made it this long. We didn't have any money. We didn't have very many people. Didn't have a building. Average church plant, I believe, lasts about two to three years. There were times where people in our church whom we, we pay to do certain things, we had to cut their pay because the giving wasn't there. Had people uh, try to destroy us from the inside, a few from the outside. And yet God has been God. I'm not a numbers guy because I don't see the metric of the Scripture pointing toward how many butts, baptisms, buildings, and budgets a church has as a measure of success. If I offended any of you, bottoms. How's that? I don't see that in Scripture. And yet God has been faithful. 
me tell you a few things just to remind you. Because in those days when you show up here to our beautiful facility here and they're sanding the floor and nobody told them and nobody told us and we come in here and it's like scraping the dust off. We get the email at the last minute saying you can't use this classroom, you can't park in our parking lot. Remember that day, that was fun. All right? When you show up in the, like, 50th, what seems like 50th, that's a sermon illustration, I expanded that, it's like a fish story. But what seems to be like the 50th VGA cable, remember that season? Where it was like every time we showed up, it was either lost or broken. Cords. In 2018, we called you not to more than what the Bible calls you to. In January of 2018, we called you to cultivate your relationship with Jesus. And guess how we asked you to do that? Repenting. Praying. Fasting. And sacrificing. Which is exactly what we see in 1 Samuel. And it's exactly what we've asked you to do again this year. Last year as a church, we set before where you asked you as your elders to submit to us as unto the Lord, as we have this year, to fast, to pray, to repent, to live sacrificially, to serve the Lord. Some of you joined us in on that. And yet God has been faithful in spite. God has been so good to us. We also started this idea that, man, to to be able to eventually get a building, we're going to have to set some money aside to be able to do that above our operating budget. We had a goal to raise $100,000. And you know what? It didn't happen. But God's still been faithful. We did not raise $100,000. You guys gave about $10,000 to that from inside the church. Yet God is no less God. That's what he had for us. And he's sanctifying us even through that. Because brothers and sisters, let's be honest. Like, as awesome as this Mecca is that we're meeting in right now, I sure get tired of doing this. I've been doing it for seven years. Twelve of us have. Okay? But you know what? If it doesn't happen, God's still faithful. And we're still going to be faithful. We're going to do that. Man, this last year we had two baptisms, and they will not give me a trophy or Justin or us a trophy from the KBC because of that. But you know what? We know where those two people are. And I count that as a win. Because I baptized a bunch of people, you guys. Most of which I have no idea where they are. But we know where those two people are. Right here. Largest, largest grouping of new members we've ever had in a single year. Fourteen new members. Covenant members. And you guys know we take that serious. I mean, we do everything but ask for blood. 
We preach through the book of Ephesians, one of my favorite books in the Bible. And I want you guys to know, it didn't always illustrate itself here, but through the preaching faithfully of that word, we saw it pierce much darkness in people's lives in this congregation. We were introduced to Anthony and Katie Smith, missionaries to Japan. And if you don't know them, they're a sweet, sweet couple. And several of you have been generous in giving to them in order for them to go to be full-time missionaries in Japan. We were able to pass off the baton of leading a new MC, and Brian stepped up to the plate to that. Again, we had lots of new babies born. Lots. We have several new people serving in mission kids and setup teams, several one-on-one discipleship relationships taking place. Um, Trevor and a team of people continue to prayer walk um, downtown through serving and praying for those folks. Uh, we've got two families, amen, involved in child care or foster care in like the last few weeks. Our church has grown by like 10% because of that. <laughs> Keep it up. Had two youth group gatherings for the first time. We had the introduction of Communities on Mission. Uh, we have a continued deep partnership with Hope House and what's going on there. We had a team of three go to West Africa on a mission trip with Reaching and Teaching. We have far, uh, we, excuse me, we have more people regularly attending our worship gathering than any time of our history. We had a financial goal of 115,000, right at 116,000. And it may, in May, it looked like we would not get anywhere close to that. And yet, through repenting, sacrificial giving, we're looking to beat that at almost about $10,000 over budget. All from a major shift since May. And you guys, here's the one I could get braggadocious to use Pastor Justin's word about. This is huge. A hundred percent of our regular attenders and members attend our MCs. If you grew up in church, Sunday school. So imagine everybody who shows up to worship also goes to Sunday school. Do you know another church like that? Call the KBC, Brian. Um, we won our trophy. <laughs> I'm going to wear around a big chain every Sunday. <laughs> I mean, I, I want you to think about what was just said there. That is huge. And, and, and here, here please, please, please get this. I tell you all of those things because it is nothing I or you have done. Have we been faithful in every way in this last year? Heck no. No. And yet God has chosen for such a time as this not to remove his light from this lampstand. And I pray that he never does until he comes back. 
I tell you these things not so that we can pat ourselves on the back. I tell you this not because of trophies, not because of bragging rights, not because of arrogance, not because your pastors are the dream team, which... I tell you none of those things because of those things. I simply tell you them that in the days of difficulty, when we are prone to forget, may we remember what God has done. And there is much more here that I could share that simply I won't. And there's many things that you know This is one of those Sundays where I wish we could stand up, but we would be here all day, and some of you guys have a problem with worshiping Jesus all day. Would be allow you to stand up and and popcorn up all over this room of what Jesus has done as we've desired to worship Jesus, make disciples, and multiply. And I think by the end, many of us would be in tears at the realization of both what we knew and what we did not know that God had done. That God has done. Brothers and sisters, we will praise him for all that is past. But we will trust him for all that is to come. We pray this prayer at mission. If you've never heard this, you need to get this in your mind and your prayer. Lord Jesus, if we must remain small to remain faithful, keep us small. Make us smaller. Because our desire is to be faithful while placing our faith in the one who has perfect faith in his name is Jesus. And everything that we need is in him. And him alone. Let's pray.